Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also, even he, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, how many impossible things are you able to believe in? I guess people must often think of Christians a bit like the White Queen from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. You remember her? She boasted to Alice that you only have to hold your breath and practice make-belief. Sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast, she said. But the funny thing is that most of us Christians, I think, are absolutely convinced when it comes to the big impossible things. Did Jesus walk on water or silence a storm? Well, never mind that. We believe he caused the big bang itself with just a word out of his mouth. Did he rise from the dead? I have absolutely no doubt about that at all. Is he able to raise me to eternal life, full of sin though I am? Well, we've staked everything on it, haven't we? It's not the big stuff we struggle with, but there are little day-to-day -day impossible things which can be a lot harder to believe. And that's what Luke is showing us here. There's an impossible conversion, and they're not always noticed. There's also a story here about witness to impossible people. And finally, the hardest thing to believe of it all. There's something impossible that Jesus chooses to use in this story as his means of witness to those people. Not a brilliant parable or a flashy miracle or a devastating argument. No, the thing he will use is the repentance of a sinner. Your ordinary Christian life. Now, as always, to appreciate the true drama of this passage, we've got to understand why the writers included it. Why is Luke told us about the conversion of this man at this point in his history of the life of Jesus. Well, when you pan out a little in these Gospels, there's always something even more exciting going on. Jesus has been on the road for most of this book, journeying very determinedly towards his death. And Jericho is the last stop on that journey. In fact, he didn't even need to make it a stop. Jesus sought it out. And more specifically, he sought out one man. One writer calls him the loneliest man in all of Jericho because he's made himself rich, verse 2, 
but at a terrible cost for a job that meant betraying his own people and worse than that, cheating and defrauding the weak and the poor. You don't get rich as a tax collector unless you're very good at squeezing out a little extra for yourself. So this Zacchaeus was a nasty man. Make no mistake, he was an abuser. So good at his job, that horrible job, that he'd won the title of chief among all of Jericho's tax collectors, and he'd lost every last friend in town. If there was ever an impossible case for Jesus to seek and save, it was him. And we don't need to speculate on that because Luke is telling us that that's his point. Right before Zacchaeus, pan out a little bit, you see that Jesus met two other men. First, there was a rich young ruler, someone who wanted Jesus, but he couldn't bear the cost of repentance. For him, it would have meant taking all that wealth and using it to help the poor and the weak. And as he walked away, we learned that humanly speaking, it is just impossible for a rich man like that to ever be saved. Next, we met someone right at the other end of the scale, a blind beggar, but Jesus reached out to him and gave him sight and saved his soul. And now comes the very last person Jesus will encounter before he walks into Jerusalem to die. A man who is both very rich, verse 2, and unable to see, verse 3. We're being shown that his soul is as lost as the rich man's, and his heart is as blind as the beggar's eyes. Yes, he's rich in gold, but in Luke's gospel he's numbered with the poor, because just like the beggar, he needs something that no amount of money can buy. So do you see then what Luke is setting up for us by placing this man right here, right at the end of Jesus' journey to his death? This utterly friendless man is who Jesus will go to the cross for, and all who are like him. For what, humanly speaking, is an impossible case, the rich and the blind. It ought to be a tremendously encouraging passage then. What happens when Jesus does the impossible and reaches out to save the lost and the lonely? Well, two things. First, verses one to six, Christ breaks uninvited into our lives. This is a story of Jesus swooping in out of the blue, sovereignly, unexpectedly, commandingly, entirely on his own initiative to rescue one lost sheep. Zacchaeus thinks he's keeping himself at a safe distance, doesn't he? Clearly he's drawn to Jesus, drawn enough to look pretty foolish. Imagine the chief tax collector trotting ahead of the crowd on his stubby little legs and shimmying himself up a tree, a fully grown man. But isn't that in itself a beautiful thing? People are drawn to Jesus, and we aren't told why this particular nasty, extorting abuser of the poor wanted to look. But we can make a pretty good guess. This isn't the first tax collector Jesus has met in this book. In fact, he made one of them his apostle right at the start of the story. And then in chapter 15, we were told that tax collectors and sinners loved to come and listen to him teach. And every time it happens, the religious insiders have grumbled about it. 
So put yourself in lonely Zacchaeus' shoes then, in verse 2. And you can imagine, can't you, why he would be so curious to see who this famous Jesus was. Who on earth was this man so willing, apparently, to be friends with people like us? Could it really be true that he has an actual disciple who was once just as lost and just as lonely as I am? Could it be true? I've never heard of a religious person like that or anyone else in the respectable world. But then notice, although he's so drawn, it's not like Zacchaeus just pushes through the crowd and begs for forgiveness. No, he goes and sits up a tree to peer on from a safe distance. And that's the point, isn't it? There is no such thing as a safe distance from Jesus Christ. It's Christ who does all of the work in seeking and saving the lost. He rescues us. And so Jesus walks right up to the tree and he looks, he seeks, and then he saves. There's no two ways to live, no evangelistic talk. He just orders him down. Don't you think verse 5 sounds kind of like the way Gandalf might talk to some foolish hobbit, stern, and yet full of love and affection. Zacchaeus, get down from that preposterous tree this instant. Hurry, because I have to invite myself to your home today. Literally, verse five, it is necessary. The point is that today, God is bringing his salvation plan to its climax for Zacchaeus and for everyone like him, every sinful son of Abraham, today, the king is walking to the cross, and Zacchaeus has a place as that plan unfolds. It's a must. He's got no say in the matter. But think what those words must have sounded like to the loneliest man in Jericho. Here is the son of God, and what is his opening gambit? It's not, what have you done, Zacchaeus? Or, it's time for you to face justice. No, right in front of all the crowds... He looks for you and invites himself right into your disgraceful house. And maybe at last this year has taught us what a profound thing that is to sit down around a table in the home of another human being. It's why the crowds cannot stand it, because what Jesus is saying is, Zacchaeus, I want a friendship with you. I forgive you, accept you, I welcome you in front of all these people, regardless of the cost to me. That's what it is to come down out of our trees and move closer to Jesus. Christianity is about fellowship with him. And so Zacchaeus does exactly what he's told, doesn't he? Word for word, he hurries and he comes down. But most of all, verse six, he does all that full of joy. Because receiving Jesus into his life is more than a man like him had ever thought possible. Now, I hope all of us can think of people a little like Zacchaeus, drawn to Jesus, but still hiding up their trees. Maybe that's you this morning. You keep coming along to church, you have done for a while, but always safely behind a screen. <laughs> Metaphorically, the camera's turned off and you're looking on at Jesus from a distance. Well, that is a good thing, isn't it? It's wonderful that something draws you to him. Whatever it is you see there, that 
thing that some part of you longs for, forgiveness, acceptance, love. It's wonderful that you are up that tree looking on because you're looking at just the right person. But it is far more important that eventually you come down. It was now or never for Zacchaeus. It's today. That's what Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down now. Maybe you've got a friend who's been reading the Bible with you for a while. There's something they find compelling about Christ, but they never seem any closer. I guess those will be the people we're most likely to have lost contact with over this year. But they're out there, aren't they? By the hundreds, up their trees, just waiting for Jesus to pass by and call them down, now or never. And I hope that's encouraging. There's no impossible case. When he breaks into a person's life, it can happen just like that. But it's worth asking, isn't it? How can we help those people? They're out there. How do we help them down? There is something so interesting in the way Jesus talks to Zacchaeus. It's so different to how we tend to tiptoe around these things. Here was someone lost and lonely, and Jesus made sure that he knew two things. One is that he was personally summoned. Come down this instant. And the other is that he was personally loved. And we don't mean the kind of love we often mean when we talk about loving our non-Christian friends. Jesus didn't organise a meal train for him or make him a toasty. Those would be great things to do. It wasn't less than that. But the most loving thing Jesus could do was reassure him that he really could be forgiven. The king wanted to put an arm around him and walk off together for a meal. So I wonder how bold we are in those two things, making sure that our friends know they are personally summoned, ordered by their king to come down from their trees and give their lives over to him right now, and personally loved, welcomed and offered forgiveness for their sins. It's tempting in our evangelism never quite to make it real, and that means we never give the lost and the lonely the thing they actually most need. Christ breaks uninvited into our lives, even the lives that humanly might seem utterly impossible to reach. But that isn't where it ends, is it? Secondly, verses seven to nine, our lives break open before a grumbling world. You couldn't make up the reaction of the crowd, could you? Zacchaeus comes bouncing out of his tree with his heart singing as this rabbi, like no one he's ever met, actually deigns to come and stay in his house. And of course, they're all thrilled for him, aren't they? At last, Zacchaeus has seen the light. Somebody's been willing to love him, help him. Well, if you think they reacted like that, you don't know much about human nature. The truth is they hate to see him happy because he doesn't deserve it. What happens in my home if the child who's been bad still gets an ice cream at the end of the day? Do their brothers and sisters rejoice with them? Not a chance. They want them subjected to worms and vegetables for all eternity. And that's the crowd. They all grumbled. Every last one of them while Jesus and Zacchaeus walk home arm in arm. 
And you have to notice that, I think, if you're going to understand what happens next. This isn't just a story about radical, humanly impossible repentance. It is that, but it's more than that. What Zacchaeus does in verse 8 comes in response to verse 7. Notice how it's joined together with that word and. I think it should probably be a but. That's a more natural translation. There's a note of defiance in Zacchaeus here. He's, he's responding to what they are all thinking about Jesus now. Notice how he draws attention to what he has to say. I guess he'd have been squirming with embarrassment for all the world. He'd have wanted to run and hide, but he doesn't. He stands to make a speech. He starts it by saying, look, behold, because what he's about to say to Jesus has to be public. And maybe once again, you can put yourself in his shoes and see why that was. Someone had just shown him kindness and grace beyond anything he'd ever dreamed of. Do you know that feeling as Christians? Well, how did he feel to see his good and kind Lord, the one he now loved more than all the world, tarnished for coming close to him? How did it feel to see people writing off that grace as cheap? Writing off Jesus' holiness, his love as tainted. Jesus loved Zacchaeus in his sin, but if that doesn't make you ashamed of your sin, nothing will. And so his life, it becomes a test case for what the true gospel is and what it does to a person. There's no way around that. It was both the grace and the grumbles that made him change. His life had to show that what Jesus had done wasn't just share with him in his sin, but save him from that sin. That's what we mean by repentance. We mean change, turning our backs on who we once were and facing Jesus instead and doing it again every single day. His name, Zacchaeus, it's something Luke's Greek phrasing draws attention to at the start of the story. It's a very Jewish name. And I wonder if maybe it was a bit of a town joke. It comes from the name Zachariah, the righteous one. Could that have been what his parents had always prayed he'd become for all these years? Well, it's what Jesus has come to make him. And so his repentance is the very same repentance that rich young ruler refused just a chapter ago. The real kind, the impossible kind. Make right the abuse and the corruption and use all that I have to help the kind of people Jesus came to save the lost, the poor. Praise God for sovereign love that can work change like that in a human heart. And right now, verse 9, the minute Jesus walked through his door and that change began, it proved to all the world that real salvation had come to his house. Because even a man like this could be a true son of Abraham, someone who trusted Abraham's gospel and was changed by Abraham's God. Even true sons of Abraham, though, with all their Jewish names and all their pedigree, even they can only be saved, can only experience change like that when the good shepherd seeks them out and breaks into their heart. This one 
sinful Israelite. He's Luke's little portrait of what Jesus is about to do at the end of his journey. Today, the Son of Man walks to his death. And in that, salvation has come to sinful believers like this everywhere. And amazingly, I reckon that miraculous change he works in Zacchaeus is still only the second most impossible thing to believe in this story. Who do you think are the hardest people to reach in the whole passage? It's not the sinners and the tax collectors, is it? Surely it's all those people in the crowd grumbling at grace. And so Zacchaeus is given the job of witnessing to Christ's changing power in front of the very people who hate the fact he's been forgiven. The loneliest man in all of Jericho is the one appointed as their first evangelist. Doesn't that sound impossible? But it's how God built his kingdom. I wonder if you can really believe that. Christ breaks uninvited into our lives and then those lives break open before a grumbling world. They become testimonies to what true grace really does. Now I was first asked to teach this passage for a CU and the brief they gave me sounded like a classic of the genre, almost whatever the passage a Christian union asks you to speak on, the email looks the same and I've never wanted to change for all the world because it's what they're there for. But it could be Genesis 1 or Ezekiel 16 or in this case Luke 19. I was asked to teach this passage and show how mission is part of normal life for the Christian. And when you look at the text at first, you wonder what on earth were they thinking? It's not a passage about mission. It's a passage about Jesus' sovereign grace and about repentance. It's saying that repentance is all of life. Luther famously put it like this, God willed our entire life to be one of repentance. But then you look a little closer and you see that whoever it was that prepared these talks for the CU had it exactly right. Repentance is just part of normal life for the Christian. And that repentance is our mission. It's simply by living for Jesus and loving the lost that Zacchaeus was going to display the changing power of God's grace, even to impossible people. So we thought earlier on about the application of this passage to people up in their trees, but the real message isn't to them, is it? The real message is to us, not people in trees, but people at tables. What kind of person does Jesus sit down to eat with? Yes, it is wonderfully true that Jesus in his gracious love makes himself the guest of sinners. That is the story of every single Christian on this Zoom, isn't it? Sinners made into friends. But it's only half the picture. Jesus sits down to eat with changing sinners. Luke wants us to read this story and say, wow, praise God for his totally sovereign love for the lost and the lonely, for people like me. But I will praise God for that love by displaying its transforming power in my own life. I will never again let the world look at me and think that my king is happy with my sin. I want them to see the real depths of what it meant to me 
when he sought out and saved a person who no one else ought to touch. Lord God, would that be what our lives show and nothing else to the praise of your gracious love. Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, how precious it still is to us that you came close to us in Jesus without holding your nose. You loved us in our sin and you still love us while so much of that sin remains. But Lord, we hate the thought that our Saviour's precious grace could be tarnished before those who know us because of that old part of us which refuses to die. So help us, we pray, to display your saving power, your transforming love before a lost and lonely world. Would you use our changing lives, Lord Jesus, as you continue to seek and to save, to the praise of your name. Amen.